The reading for tonight is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army had suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Thanks Aurelia for that reading and thanks Vinny for praying. It's always encouraging to have some of the crew that hang out with us every Friday jumping up on a Saturday and doing an awesome job. So that's it and very, very encouraging. So tonight we'll be continuing on our series in 1 Samuel but before I jump into this passage let's just start by praying to our great God. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us tonight as your people. Pray that we won't be distracted by the things of this world that are happening around us, work, life, busyness, school holidays, Lord. I just ask that we can stop tonight and come to your word with open ears and soft hearts and as people who are hungry for your word. Amen. So, as um, I'm sure we'll get used to as we go through the series of, um, in 1 Samuel, we'll be going through quite big chunks. And so the chunk we have tonight is actually chapters 4 to 7. But I'll be mainly concentrating on the reading we just had read out, which is all of chapter 4. But if you'd like to grab a Bible or have one open on your phone, that would be really helpful because we will be sticking mainly in chapter 4, but we will jump around a little bit as well because we have lots of things to cover. But first, before we jump into that, I have a question. Do you have a friend that only texts you when they need something? I feel like most people have that person in their life when their phone buzzes and they roll over and they look at it and they're like, ah, okay, this is what this is. This isn't someone asking for a friendly chat or maybe checking up on how my week has been. No, I know exactly what they want. And I generally, I will admit, I'm that person to some people. There are some people in my lives that own a lot of tools that I don't own. There's some people in my lives that have a lot of skills that I don't have, and so I'm sure that I'm that person to a bunch of people. But I think we all can admit, being on the receiving side, no one likes that person. (laughs) No one likes the person that only texts them when they need something. And tonight, we'll be thinking through that, which is interesting, when we're looking at Old Testament. We'll be thinking through, are we people that only call on God when we need something? Because that's what we're looking at tonight with Israel. We see a people who have put God in a box. A people that put God in a box and decide, okay, we're only going to get that box out when we really, really need something. And I think it's an important thing that we can look at and question as we go through this passage is, is my relationship with God just part of my life? Or is it the thing I build my life on? Is my relationship with God something I only use when it's convenient? Or when I really, really need something? In this passage, we see a desperate Israel, a desperate, desperate nation that does turn to God. And they turn to God and, and try and get his help, but they do so out of selfishness and not out of repentance. So, heavy start, heavy passage, but we'll jump straight in. So we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel. If you missed last week, that's where we started. And that's all about the journey of the nation of Israel as they go from a group of tribes, as we see in the book of Judges, to at the end of 1 Samuel, and 2 Samuel a little bit as well, but definitely by the end of 1 Samuel, we see them as a kingdom, united under a king, first Saul, and then David. And this period that we've walked through in the book of Judges, the period of Judges, has shown Israel's problems over and over again. Problems in leadership, as we'll see tonight with Eli and his sons, and problems amongst the people as a whole. Despite this, the book of Samuel shows how God continues to care for his people. He continues to care for them, and we see him raising up a king whose job will be to be their champion, representative, and example. One Samuel more or less picks up exactly where judges Uh, leaves off right as Israel is about to face disaster and that's what we see tonight them facing probably the lowest point to this point apart from the end of Judges so the structure of 1 Samuel 
Um, the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel focus on the sovereignty of Yahweh and the, the continued moral decline of the nation of Israel. It's kind of like, okay, the first seven chapters are really an exploration of what does faith in God look like in faithless times? What are the worst examples we can think of of this nation in decline? And how do we compare that to how good, sovereign, and perfect their God is? So we'll be covering big sections, as I mentioned, and jumping through. So I would highly encourage you to read along, because we're not going to be able to cover everything every week. We did three chapters last week, another four this week. And we'll be touching on bits and pieces. But um, yeah, I'd really encourage, there's lots of great uh, Bible reading plans on the Bible app if you have that on your phone or even just following along with the Bible studies we're doing. If you don't go to a Bible study, maybe you just like the Bible study material, then just ask on the pastors. We'd be more than happy to give it to you. So a quick, quick overview of what we did last week. In chapter one of Samuel, we introduced to Hannah, a woman who is unable to have a child and is pleading to do so. And this is a type, this is an example, this is something we see over and over again in the biblical story and it normally means that something big is going to happen. The narrator is showing us that the promises of God will be coming through this. And so Hannah promises to God that if she does give birth to a child that she will give them to the temple in the service of God and we see that in chapter 1 verse 20. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So that's our first character, Hannah, and then introducing um, probably the, the, one of the main characters of the book, Samuel. It's definitely named after him, but I hesitate to call him the main character. Anyway, we're also introduced to Eli, a priest who is not presented in the best of lights over, the, over his journey through the first couple of chapters of Samuel, and we'll hear more about him tonight. So they were introduced in chapter 1. The first half of chapter 2, we find the beautiful prayer of Hannah, her thanksgiving prayer that is given to God, and Paul took us through that last week on, a, on Saturday. And then the second half of chapter 2, we find the sad account of Eli's wicked sons, who will be a part of tonight's chapter. And then we see at the end of that chapter, an anonymous man of God prophesies against the house of Eli, tells him his sons will die shortly. And that's more on that later. Immediately after that prophecy, we have the focus of last week's talk that Paul gave us and that's the famous story of God speaking to Samuel and him becoming a prophet. So that's a quick flyover of chapters one to two if you missed last week but we're picking up tonight in chapter four. An interesting thing um, if you read the end of chapter three last week and thought okay cool Samuel's here this is what we're going to be doing for the next little bit. Samuel isn't present in chapters one, uh, four to seven and his absence I think does spread a big message about the state of Israel in this time. We've just been introduced in chapter 3 to the new prophet of the Lord, the one who speaks God's divine word and will bring it to his people for a majority of this book. But he's not present in these next four chapters. And this gives us our first sign that things probably aren't going too well if Israel are already failing to consult the prophetic voice they had available to them. So... Um, we'll be jumping into chapter 4, verse 1. And the Philistines make their first appearance in Samuel. Now Samuel, uh, verse 1, Now Samuel went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. So we see over the course of the Old Testament that conflicts between Israel and the Philistines dominate the story for nearly 200 years. 
It's nearly 200 years that they're just going back and forth. And this is a persistent historical context behind all of Judges, all of 1 Samuel and most of 2 Samuel. The Philistines are there and they're a problem and they keep coming back. So we see in verse 2, we aren't told who the instigator is, but we see in verse 2 the Israelites go out to fight against the Philistines. We see the results of how it went in verse 2. Verse 2, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them in the battlefield. So, so far, not so good for Israel. Israel has been defeated and they've been sent back. And so we see they regroup and have to come up with a plan. Verse 3. When the soldiers returned to camp and the, Israel, and the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Okay. So I'm not sure if I would have to give an explanation of what the ark of the covenant is 10 years ago or probably 20 years ago to be more effective. Who here has seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, good. I thought there would be little to no hands up the front, so I'm very excited about that. I, used, I accidentally used Firefly as an example on a Friday night a couple of weeks ago and then realized that that came out in 2002 and that was not a couple of years ago anymore. But anyway, I will... The Ark of the Covenant isn't just a prop from Indiana Jones. So that came out in 1981, so good job. I'm very proud of you all who are um, very educated in movie... Um, savvy but uh, I'll just quickly go through the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is one of the most important symbols of faith and God's presence Um, inside the Ark which is basically a big box made of acacia wood includes the tablets of the Mosaic law so the um, Ten Commandments a pot of manna and the rod of Aaron so the Ark originated in Exodus 25 10 when God commands Moses to create it. And for the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant meant God's presence. Throughout the Old Testament, we see how God provided safety and success for his people as they go from being in Egypt, wandering through and going into the Promised Land. And we see that the Ark is used as a symbol of this safety and success. The Israelites, who are coming up with this plan, trying to figure out how they're going to battle the Philistines, are probably thinking back, to the Battle of Jericho, and we see that in Joshua chapter 6. The ark was instrumental in the Battle of Jericho. They take the ark around the city six times in six days and preceded by seven priests who sounded seven trumpets made of ram horns in Joshua 6-7. And on the seventh day, um, the ark and the men, sorry, on the seventh day, armed with the ark, the men and the priests did the same, but then shouted, and the walls of, the Jer- of Jericho fell down, Joshua 6.20. So the ark represents victory, it represents success, it represents safety. And it's actually the visible symbol of the presence of Yahweh in Israel. So of course when the Israelites think, okay, we need a win here. We need a win here, we've already got destroyed, what are we going to do? And you can almost hear it, I know what we're going to do. Let's dust off that box in the back of the cupboard that God lives in. Let's get that out of the back of the cupboard and let's bring it and see if that works again. It worked to Jericho. Now, I'm being a bit silly, but it's pretty easy if you've um, read through Judges and we've made our way through Judges. If 
it's pretty easy to see their thinking. There's a pretty clear pattern over the course of Judges and the start of 1 Samuel. We see, one, the Israelites would sin. As it says over and over again in Judges, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And two, God would hand them over to an enemy nation. Three, this would cause the people to repent. And then four, God would raise up a judge to deliver them. So it's pretty easy to see that pattern. They've gone, okay, well, that's what's happened over and over again for us. Faithfulness has meant success. But failure to live God's way has led to defeat. So you can see the correlation the Israelites are making here as they come out with their plan. Okay, faithfulness has meant success. And failure has led to defeat. What are we going to do? Well, we obviously need God back on our side. But this is the stark difference and the sad reality that we see here at the start of 1 Samuel. We see that the system and the nation of Israel have unraveled so much over the course of Judges and over the start of 1 Samuel. We see these books trace the moral deterioration of a nation till we get to this point. As we see at the end of Judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. But this doesn't stop the Israelites from thinking, okay, let's copy this pattern. We've got, we've got step one, the Israelites have done evil, we've stuffed up. Okay, but two, God has handed us over to an enemy nation. They've lost the first battle. This is the story they've seen over and over again. They've gone, okay, cool, we need to get God back on our side then. This is happening over and over again. But the most important thing and the thing that I hope we'll stick on tonight is that they forget step three. There's no repentance to the Lord. We see the elders are bewildered and confused by Philistine's victory, but rather than leading their people in repentance to the Lord, they decide to make other arrangements. They're ultimately still trying to be just as self-dependent as they were. They're trying to think of how they're able to arouse the power of God, how this will then lead them to a military victory, and they go, okay, cool, the people of Israel view the ark as an infallible talisman. Okay, this is God. This is how God lives with us. And to us, it represents victory. And they hope if they wheel it out, it will mean that God's presence is on their side and it will guarantee success. So to me, I can't help thinking of my dad coached me and my brother and my younger brother as well, soccer team, for a very, 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 very long time. Some of us more successful than others, but he also had a routine. At the start of every season, he would buy a hat and he would wear that hat until we lost. And then he would start wearing another hat. And then he would wear that hat till we lost. And then he would start wearing another hat. But if we kept winning, it was the same hat every week. Okay? Now, you would favorably question what a hat has to do with the outcome of a junior soccer game. Whether my, the hat that my dad wore actually affected the outcome of under-14D soccer. Did that matter? But it's not actually about whether it mattered or not to dad. It's, instead, it's an attempt at controlling things we can't control. It's an attempt to manipulate an outcome in any way we can. He wanted to win, and so he'd keep wearing the hat that we won when he wore. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And in verse 4, 
And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing. They're going, okay, how can we manipulate this outcome? How can we control something we feel like we can't control? We've lost once. How can we make this work better? And instead of going, okay, we probably need to repent and figure out what we've done wrong and make things right with God, they've skipped that step and gone, okay, this is what worked last time. Wearing this hat worked last time. And God was on our side when we did this. So obviously he's going to be on our side if we wheel out the ark again. In verse 4, we see a subtle reference to what will happen in this situation. It just kind of gives you a little hint, if you've been paying attention, that this is not an action that has been sanctioned by God. So in verse 4, So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. The narrator who's writing the story is here to remind us, the people who are reading along, that the ark is being brought out by the two wicked sons of Eli, the priests that are doing the wrong thing. And the presence of God and wicked priests is not compatible. So it should ring alarm bells for us even before we know the outcome of these actions. The Israelites in chapter 4 are looking to manipulate God to have an outcome of the battle that that favours them. And we kind of do get a little tease in verse 5 that this briefly might work. Turn with me to verse 5. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came to the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout, and the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what is all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no. Nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues and wickedness. And we think, okay, maybe this is going well. They seem a bit scared. It seems to be working at the start, but it quickly backfires as we turn to verse 9 and verse 10. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight so that every Philistine fought and the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark is captured, verse 11. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. In these two verses, we see the, the extreme consequences of Israel's sin and how they've attempted... To, outcome the, uh, to manipulate the outcome, and it's completely backfired. Their tactic just emboldens the Philistines. Israel suffered enormous losses, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. Eli's sons also die. And this is kind of the low point of the entire story in 1 Samuel. And it's a low point for Israel as a nation. The physical symbol of God's presence living with the people of Israel has been taken And removed, and they don't have it any longer. And we see, as was read out in the end of chapter 4, this massive defeat is followed by two related stories. So we see the death of Eli, 4 12 to 8, and the birth of Ichabod, 4 19 to 22. So the death of Eli, 4 12 to 18. On this day, the Philistines. Um, Sorry, on the day the Philistines capture the ark, a runner comes from Shiloh in distress with torn clothes and dust on his head in verse 12. And the messenger comes 
with news containing four parts. He knows how to give good news. He gives it in four parts and it slowly gets more important as it goes along. And so he goes, okay. He runs up to Eli and he goes, okay, the Israelite army has been defeated. The heavy, heavy casualties have been inflicted. Both your sons are dead. And finally, the ark has been captured. And we're not actually told Eli's reaction to the first three pieces of news, which is interesting because his son's died is the third piece of news, which kind of shows us a little bit of maybe the relationship there or the things going on. But instead, at the mention of the ark's capture, he falls down, and because of his old age and great weight, he dies. And this is important because it signals the end of Eli's leadership over Israel. And the second story that follows in the end of chapter 4 is the birth of Ichabod. This is another birth narrative that kind of mirrors what happened in chapter 1. But unlike the birth of Samuel, this doesn't introduce a new period of Israel's history. Instead, this is tying the knot on the previous one. The birth of Samuel starts a new period of um, history for Israel. This is tying up the loose ends from the previous one. These accounts of the death of Eli and the birth of Ichabod play an important role in the story so far. The condemnation of Eli's family was established in prophecy in chapters 2, 23 to 36, and Samuel's words in chapter 3, 11 to 14 as well. And this part of the passage shows us the dramatic transformation through these judgments. This is the end of the decline of Israel under their previous leaders. And as we move on next week and looking on, we will see under Samuel the beginning of something new. So as we move on through chapters 5 and 6, we see that Israel has been defeated. The ark has been captured. But an interesting thing is that God doesn't let the Philistines think that they have defeated him. Over the course of seven months, he sends plagues and disturbances wherever the ark is taken. And until the Philistines finally give up, up and send the ark back as a tribute to God with a tribute of gold. So in chapter 6, verse 1, when the ark of the Lord has been in Philistine territory seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it back to its place. They answered, if you return the ark of, God, of the God of Israel, do not send it back without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has been lifted from you. So in chapter 6, the ark returns. And it's interesting because it shows how Israel was defeated by the Philistines in chapter 4. But God wasn't defeated by the Philistines. In fact, God doesn't even need an army to succeed. He didn't need the Israelites at all to get the ark returned to them. They, there was nothing they could do. It was only in God's strength that he did it. And so as we finish off with the end, with the ark returning back in chapter 7, there's still a few big loose ends and problems that are happening at this stage of Samuel. The Philistines are a continue, continual threat to Israel and their security in the promised land um, to them. There's still a problem. They haven't gone away. The lack of a proper moral center, uh, sorry, the lack of a center of worship of God, the ark, which was taken by the Philistines but now returned, 
It's still not housed in a proper um, place of worship like a tabernacle or a temple. It's kind of held in quarantine for the next little bit and it's held in quarantine until David goes and gets it in chapter 22. The problem and the third problem that still exists as, we, as the ark comes back is the problem of Israel's leadership. While Samuel has been flagged as Israel's new leader, we're yet to fully see what will happen and what's in action. And these three predicaments hang over the narrative like loose thread, threads that remain to be tied up. So keep these in mind as we continue our journey through Samuel over the next couple of weeks. How will God seek to fix these problems that are wrong with Israel? And so this is an interesting one as we turn to what we can do with this as we head out tonight. Other than maybe a few of us need to rewatch Indiana Jones, <laughs> the challenge I, um, the challenge tonight, I feel like, is do we put God in a box? Do we put God in a box that we only pull out and make part of our lives when we want to control things that we can't control? When we need to get a win? when we need to manipulate an outcome and achieve what we want in any way we can. I think as we think through that challenge, it's important to remember two things. God doesn't owe us. First thing is God does not owe us anything. We can depend on God, and the Israelites could have depended on God with what they were doing, but they showed no repentance or remorse. The Israelites failed to acknowledge their sin, and their guilt, and acted as though God was obligated to do them a favor in their war against Philistines. He'd helped us win before, so he has to help us win now. We are his people. Even if we do the wrong thing and don't hold up our end of the bargain, he's still our God, so he should help us out. And so it's important to remember, unlike the Israelites in this passage, we can never assume that God owes us something although we can control the outcome of any kind of conflict or anything by appealing to our relationship with God. A life with God is one dictated by grace. It does not depend on our own merit. And what a blessing that actually is, that it's through grace and not our works that we can have our relationship with God. And the second thing to remember as we come out of this passage is that our relationship with God is actually different to that of ancient Israel. It's important that we, as we look at the Old Testament and we see outcomes and covenantal relationship between Israel and God to remember that this is a different thing to what we are dealing with now. We as Christians have been blessed with the whole picture. We've been given God's full picture for salvation and how it was completed with Israel on the cross and what a privilege that is. We no longer are mediated to God through priests or box or a physical temple. Instead, God's Holy Spirit dwells within us and we can have a relationship with him. And I think that's the big question that we look at and we pull out and I want to challenge us with as we walk out tonight. What does our relationship with God look like? Do we put God in a box or are we letting him into our whole lives? Are we the people that only call on God when we need something? Is God just a part of our life, or is he the center of it? Are we, like Israel, turning to God and crying out for help, but not saying sorry, only seeking to gain advantage and gain things that we want? 
It's an important and big question and something I've had a privilege of thinking about all this week and I promise, I hope that you guys can think about it more as we head out to dinner. But I think a helpful tool I've found in thinking through how my relationship with God is going and whether it's at the centre or maybe just on the outskirts or maybe in a box right in the back of my brain, I think it's helpful to think about an indicator of this is what does my prayer life say about my relationship with God? And it's okay to pray and ask God for things. It says in Philippians 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So it's okay to ask God for things. But I think it's about thinking about how your relationship with him is centered around coming to him in in everything, but with repentance and forgiveness and having God at the center of our lives rather than just in a box that we pull out when we need something. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be in a relationship with you. That your Son has made us in right relationship with you. That we can talk to you in prayer, that we can read your word, and that you have blessed us with your Spirit. Lord, please help us to keep you at the centre of our lives and to build everything upon our relationship with you. Pray that as we go out tonight, we can reflect on where we're at and you'll give us moments of clarity. Amen.